This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, Session 73. And the quote of the day is from Harry Kemp, who said, The poor man is not he who is without a scent, but he who is without a dream. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And if you are looking to market yourself as a musician in the modern world and want to brand yourself as a professional and get more exposure and more followers and more gigs, check out my free webinar, Marketing for the Modern Musician, and I'll teach you how to do all of that stuff for free. And you can do that by going to drummersresource.com forward slash register if you want to learn more and if you want to sign up for that webinar. Today's guest is Mike Meadows, who's an award-winning drummer, percussionist, and background vocalist based in Austin, Texas. He's worked with an amazing slew of people uh, from Ben Queller to Hayes Carl, John Fulbright, Sam Baker. He just recorded a record with Chris Christofferson, and he has been all over the world playing music, playing records, playing live. And he also owns a percussion company called Swan Percussion, and they make a ton of amazing Looking and amazing sounding percussion equipment from Cajones, and he actually invented a drum called the Black Swan, and he has a patent on that, and we're going to talk all about that as well. So let's get right into this interview with my good buddy, Mike Meadows. Mike, what's going on, buddy? Thanks so much for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. We had a little technical difficulties, but we got that figured out. So, you know, technology is great when it works, but when it doesn't, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. It's, uh, we've become pretty reliant on it. I know, and that's the issue. It's like you're so you're so reliant, and then when it doesn't work, you're like, now what do I do? Totally. You know? <laughs> so I always like to get some sort of backstory on everybody that I have on the podcast. So what's, what's your backstory? What's your history, and how did you get into playing drums? Oh, boy. <laughs> I've got a pretty interesting one. Um, I basically wanted to play the drums before I could even speak. Um, I would hear drums or see drums and I would go crazy for it. And, uh, before I could walk, I'd pull out pots and pans and bang on them. Like I just always wanted to play the drums. And when I was about two and a half, I was just begging my parents to, to get me some drums and, and to give me drum lessons. And they said, no. (laughs) (laughs) Flat out. Yeah. They were like, no, that's not happening. But, uh, if you learn the piano, we'll, uh, then you can, then you can study the drums. So at age three, I started taking piano lessons Mm. and, I wasn't really that interested in the piano, except for I knew that eventually it would help me get to the drums. Mm -hmm. And so then again, when I was five, I asked my parents like, Hey, I've been practicing piano and learning and can I learn the drums now? And they were like, Oh, well, you know, we're going to, we're going to go to this thing and and you're going to sing with some people and, and let's just see how you like that. And, uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> little did I know I was I was taken on my first audition. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, so I was five, and I went to an audition for the Atlanta Boy Choir, which I, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And um, and I got in. So then I started singing when I was five, and uh, the choir at at that time was pretty intense. Um, we had to memorize everything starting at the age of five and you start rehearsing once a week for a couple hours a week, Mm -hmm. um, at that age. And then by nine it, uh, you're doing six hours of rehearsal two days a week and, and you start touring in Europe in the summers. Nice. Yeah. And, um, they were were, into that though, or were you like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to go to Europe for the summer. I want to hang out with my friends. No, I was super into it because yeah. I was friends. I mean, you know, you make friends there in that situation. So, right. um, you know, there were a lot of the other kids were cool and we'd, we'd usually tour for about a month and I got to go all over the place and sang classical music and like, all the the great venues you know for for that music like Mm -hmm. and i know that you love traveling now um but was do you think that that's what got you into traveling as well Uh, i definitely think that's a big part of it i mean i started touring when i was nine (laughs) so it's like (laughs) you're like sorry man i'm on tour i can't uh i can't hang (laughs) yeah and it was funny uh i know i'm digressing a little bit but but, um, you know, a lot of kids would get homesick and stuff on tour. And the first tour I went on, my mom sent me with, uh, like a stack of postcards that were already like prepaid mm-hmm. to be able to send, send back. back. And, um, and on tour, we'd only stop like a few times to be able to, to buy postcards or whatever. And that was the only way you were allowed to communicate with your family was through writing letters or postcards. You couldn't call them or anything. And and they did that to kind of keep kids from getting too homesick mm-hmm. and um, just to control it. Cause you know, when you have like 40 kids or whatever that you're touring and, and going to meet like heads of state and the Pope and stuff like that and, and playing on national TV in these countries, like you got to kind of control that the variables as much as you can sure and how long were the tours uh they'd usually be like three weeks to a month okay that's long when you're that age yeah so when you're not and that's that's pretty intense but so anyway my mom sent me with these postcards and and uh i (laughs) i came home and she was like michael how come you didn't send me a postcard all these other moms were getting letters and postcards from their kids and i didn't get one from you and I reach in my pocket and I pull out a wad of cash and I was like, that's because I sold all of them, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Look how much money I made. <laughs> Who'd you sell them to? To the other kids who were homesick and like wanted to send postcards to their <laughs> their families. <laughs> so I was just out there having a good time and, you know, I knew that my folks would be there when i got back or nice. at least i assume so so You're like man I, i'm gonna make some bread while i'm out here yeah so i saw it as an opportunity you know. <laughs> i like it i like it. <laughs> yeah but um so then again when i was nine i asked my parents if i could play the drums because I, I still that's what i really wanted to do you know 
And uh, they were like, oh, what do you think about the saxophone or the violin or the trumpet? I was like, oh, trumpet's pretty cool. So, boom, they signed me up for trumpet lessons right away. Why were they so (laughs) against you playing drums? Because it's so loud? Yeah, I guess they just thought, you know, it was just kind of noisy and and would be, you know, rough to listen to as as I got it together. I don't know, man. A trumpet from somebody who can't play the trumpet is annoying as all hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so then I'm playing piano, still taking piano lessons, studying trumpet, um, singing in the choir. And then uh, when I was 11, my big break came. And in the choir, I was a second alto, so we never got vocal solos. That was always the sopranos, mm-hmm. even though I was the the section leader. And... Um, but then we we would do the the little drummer boy every Christmas season, and the kid who was the, had been the little drummer boy, his voice was starting to change, and I knew he was going to be out the next season, and they'd have auditions for the next drummer boy. Ah, uh, and you're like, here we go. So that was my that was my way to work it with my folks was to say, hey, look, this is kind of my chance to come out and shine as an individual but I'm going to need some drum lessons. <laughs> right. So I started studying classical percussion uh, with Jeff Kirshner, who at the time was um, playing in the the Atlanta Ballet and also did stuff with the Atlanta Symphony and was teaching at uh, Kennesaw State University. And so first just started off on snare drum, just getting the rolls together so I could get that part. And I did. I became the drummer boy. Nice. And um, and then I actually continued to play uh, percussion with them and and tour like as a as a chaperone or a counselor is what they call it um, until I was probably like sixteen or seventeen. So I'd play percussion on other parts like Benjamin Britten's Golden Vanity and stuff. Right. And, uh, and also just kind of help take care of everything on on the tour. Hmm. So how what age group is that is that choir? Um, so five is the earliest you can start, which is when I started, and then it goes up till their voice changes, which is about twelve mm-hmm. usually. I got you. That um, makes sense. Yeah, and then uh, there's an alumni choir that I also sang in for a little bit, and uh, it, it was amazing. I mean, I learned so much about music. It was at such a high level. You know, we did a right. lot of stuff with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and the first recording I was ever on was Benjamin Britten's War Requiem with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and it won two Grammys. That's nuts. So do yeah. you get the award for it? No, no. I mean, it's such a huge, you know, the whole symphony and chorus are all part of it. Um, but it was cool to like be like, oh, this, you know, I was like 11 or something and it's like, you know, watch the Grammys on TV and like know that like, oh, this thing I did is nominated for the, you know, it was was like nominated for three and it won two. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Especially like you said, at that age, you know, that it's like, man, you know, that's a, that's an amazing feat at that or at any age. And especially, you know, at that young of an age. Yeah, it was wild. And, you know, like we did, um, like the first Martin Luther King Day, I remember really well. 
because his widow, Coretta Scott King, specifically asked that we perform at it for like the first parade. Really? Yeah. And, and she also specifically at the time wanted us to do uh, a version of We Are the World. Hmm. And at first the director wasn't into it, but he, he got, um, got this great arranger to do an arrangement for us that he ended up really liking. And so for the first Martin Luther King Day uh, in Atlanta, we went and um, did this uh, performance of, of We Are the World. That's, that's and, pretty cool, man. Yeah. That's yeah, pretty awesome. It was really cool. I mean, it was, you know, and, and as a kid, I didn't really think about all this stuff. You know, it's like but traveling all over. Yeah, it's mind-blowing to look back at it. Like the, the people that I got to meet and the experiences I had, you know, performing at like the Opera House in Vienna to a sold-out crowd. Right. And, you know, doing Foray's Requiem at the Church of La Madeleine in Paris where he wrote it. And, you know, we met several heads of state and, you know, it's it, like, like over here in the U.S., the Vienna Boy Choir is really well known. Mm-hmm. And the Atlanta Boy Choir was like that in Europe. And, I got you. And, and they actually have kind of like a joint like brother choir thing where um, they did do some collaborations at some point together. But um, we never toured over here. We only toured in Europe and they mostly tour over here. So it's like over there we were really well known. I got you. Hmm. So, yeah, so it was it was cool. And it, it definitely gets you hooked on the whole thing of, you know, performing and, and touring. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now, all right. So you got the, you, you move up the ranks, you get the drummer boy part. And then, so once you start playing drums, was it just like off to the races for you? Did you start taking lessons and, and studying drums or were you self-taught or? Well, so I learned the classical percussion stuff, um, snare drum and timpani and all that. Um, and, and I did it in, band i also played trumpet in band though too like in junior high and high school Mm -hmm. and um and my parents never got me a a drum kit like i still just wanted to rock out like john bonham sure (laughs) but we still want to do that yeah exactly (laughs) but but i had uh i had a snare drum and then uh then i saved up and i got a (laughs) hi-hat watch out so for a while i just had a hi-hat and a snare drum and then, uh, I think around when I was like, are you looking back now and you're like, man, I should have got a, I should have got a kick. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's all good. <laughs> um, but, but then I got, um, I got a Pearl export was my first kit. Nice. And I think I was like 15 and, uh, and then I, at that point I had been doing music for so long I could read music and I could, uh, hear stuff and cop it a lot. So I didn't, I didn't take drum set lessons for a couple of years. I just would learn stuff off of records or would get transcriptions and learn transcriptions or start transcribing stuff on my own. Right. And then I played in like jazz band in high school and in pit band, we did like really great, uh, theater productions and stuff. So I'd play for that. Uh, we didn't have a marching band. We had a pep band. So for that, I did. I played quads and uh, and snare. 
different years. So, so I mean, you've done it all. I, you know, like you've you've worked in all these all these different genres and playing all these different instruments, and I think that that totally shapes the way that you play today. Not only from a technical aspect, but also from a musical standpoint of of how you hear the music and and how melodies work and and song structure and you know just how the whole thing fits together rather than just being the guy that's playing the drum beat. Oh, big time. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's been a huge thing, you know, the fact that I hear harmony and and melody and understand how it all works together, you know, right. and how to how to complement it or stay out of the way. That's mm-hmm. why I've, I've worked with a lot of songwriters. Um and yeah, eventually, you know, I started taking drum set lessons with uh, this guy Jeff Sipe. I don't know if I know him. Oh man, he's one of the greatest in the world. <laughs> really? I've never even heard of him. Yeah, his uh Jeff Sipe is his name, but he's he's also known as a Apartment Q258. And he played in this band called Aquarium Rescue Unit. Oh yeah, I know that band. Yeah, and it was Jimmy Herring on guitar, O'Teal Burbridge on bass, uh, Kofi Burbridge on keyboards, and uh, Colonel Bruce Hampton fronted the first couple records, and then they had another guy. And then Count Mbutu was the percussionist, who I also studied uh, congas and, and was my first hand drum teacher. Oh, okay. Um, so I was studying with, with him on hand, hand drums and, and with Sype on drum set. Uh, sort of later part of high school and uh yeah Sype has played with all kinds of people but he he's got he was in a trio for a long time with uh Sean Lane and Jonas Helborg mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. Jonas was the bass player with McLaughlin mm-hmm. for a long time mm-hmm. and, and uh Sean uh was probably one of the greatest guitar players he he died pretty young but he was like uh you know Buckethead yeah he was Buckethead's uh, like mentor. And, oh, really? Like, Buckethead looked up to. Yeah, he was kind of a child prodigy guitar player. I got you. Just was a total monster. And so they had an improvisational trio, um, just called I think it's called Hellborg, Hellborg Lane Sipe. And there's a few records out there that you can check out, but it's some pretty insane drumming. I'm writing this down right now. Yeah, and now he's got the Jeff Sipe trio, and he's the kind of guy who kind of always knew what he wanted to do and occasionally would do some other gigs, but he he's turned down so many gigs because it wasn't the kind of music that he wanted to play. Like he really loves improvisational. Some of it's kind of jam band. Some of it's more fusion esque. Well, cause Aquarium rescue unit was more of like a jam band kind of thing, wasn't it? Yeah, they were big on the jam band scene, but those guys can play anything. I mean, right. They're all such great players. I feel like John Fishman played with them for a little while. Well, Fish actually used to open up for them. Oh, really? Like years mm-hmm. and years ago? Yeah, yeah. They would open for them, and then it would, and then it flipped, and they would open for Fish and stuff. But mm-hmm. he never played in the band. But uh, you know, those guys would all kind of sit in with each other. Right. I guess that's what it was. I, I just remember something about John Fishman playing with. Um, Aquarian Rescue Unit. I just, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Sipe, I mean, he's he is like one of the heaviest players out there. And um, anybody who's seen him or knows him will tell you the same thing. Nice. And so I felt really fortunate to hook up with him because he, 
he taught me some concepts early on that were uh, just major foundation things for me that that changed my whole perspective of thinking about time and and drums and and uh, just the whole approach, you know. Can we get into that a little bit? What was the what was some of the stuff that you guys went over? And I because I love hearing the not like the technical side of everything. Like, oh, he taught me how to play rudiments or something like that. But more of the approach and and like you said, how to how to feel time and and how to hear different things and approach playing. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there were there were so many things. Like, for one thing, he got me into videotaping all of my practice sessions and taking notes about it. And paying attention to like, am I holding my breath when I do a fill? <laughs> you know, right. sure. And going back and and learning to like relax and breathe and see if I have any sort of mu- muscle tension at certain points. Um, concepts like when you're doing a fill, going from high toms to low toms, you need to. If the goal is to to keep the sound even then you have to increase your velocity because the lower drums take more work to keep the sound even. So -hmm. if you're hitting all the drums at the same velocity as you move around, the sound is going to kind of fall off unless you increase the velocity Hmm. uh, as you move from high to low. So you actually need to get, you know, push harder on it as as you're going down and that's typically what you want to do because if you're doing a fill around like that, you're usually building into something. Right. And so to, when you hit that final crash or whatever, and you come out of it. So you need to be hitting harder as you're going down the drums. And it's a subtle thing, but it's the kind of thing that makes a big difference, you know. Well, well I think that's what separates the, the great players from the average players is the subtleties, is the, you know, the evenness, is the, you know, certain accents that they're playing, is the you know, whether they're letting the bass drum breathe or they're burying the head and just all these little subtleties that all add up. I think that's what makes the players great. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's all about those, those small choices, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and, and having the ability to make those choices. So you learn all these things and then you learn how to, to use them or not use them or completely disregard them, you know, but, but at least you have the ability to make those choices so that you can be as musical as possible, you know, right. and really support what it is that whatever style or whatever it is that you're doing, knowing everything and every little subtlety behind it as much as you can to be able to then do the best job you can for, for whatever the, the end goal is, you know, I agree. So I have two questions stemming from this conversation. One, there's so many, there's so many things to work on outside of all of like, you have to learn your styles and you have to learn your rudiments and all of the fundamental things that you need to learn. Then there's the other side of it is, you know, playing musically, musically, excuse me, and the subtleties that we're talking about. So one, how do you really assess what subtleties uh, you need to add into your playing and, you know, what, what you don't have in your playing at this point. And also how do you suggest working on those subtleties? Um, I think some of them come just, uh, stylistically, depending on if you have a certain gig that you're doing, there are certain ways of playing that you're going to have to play, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like if you're playing in a loud rock band, the way you physically play 
is very different than if you're playing in a, you know, quiet jazz trio. Sure. You know, and so it's hard to practice all of those things at one time. Um, And so I think sometimes it's about whatever your passion is or whatever the gig that you're currently doing will kind of dictate how you approach the practicing mm-hmm. and diving you know? into those styles. Yeah. Seeing so what other cats are doing. Exactly. So you just start checking out everything that's similar and, um, you know, playing to records and watching. I mean, now with YouTube and stuff, you can just watch videos of just about anything, man. If I had YouTube when I was a kid, Oh, it's uh, crazy. Uh, yeah. It's, it's crazy. It, you know, it, and it's funny. I mean, in some ways it takes some of the mystery out of it. Cause it's like, you know, I remember really trying to figure out stuff um, <laughs> yeah. and and sitting there listening to it over and over again and and transcribing stuff. And, and it could be anything from, like, Philly Joe Jones to, to Stephen Perkins with Jane's Addiction, mm-hmm. you know. Like, mm-hmm. when that Jane's Addiction live record came out, I remember some of the stuff, the way he would move around the toms and play some of those beats was such a cool approach but to figure out what he was doing like if i saw it it would be super fast to figure it out right but to sit there and listen and try to hear each tom and where it was rewinding the tape and go back (laughs) yeah so you know and i don't know which is i don't know if it's better that you have to had to work harder (laughs) to to figure it out or or not because you know sometimes that creates a new thing too, like the, you know, the stories of like Bob Marley and a lot of the early reggae guys were, you know, they were trying to cop sounds of stuff they were listening to that was coming out in the U S and they basically invented new ways of playing and doing things because they were trying to cop these sounds that they didn't understand, like what delay was or, right, you know, right, right. <clears throat> um, so, which is cool in and of itself. Yeah, so that's like, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing because now you can just watch a video and you can actually see how somebody does something, but maybe you're not coming up with something that would be even cooler and maybe its own creative inspiration because you were trying to come up with something that you didn't understand mm-hmm. and you stumble on this new thing that's that's even cooler, you know, I don't know. You know, and I, I agree with that. I, I totally agree with that, Mike. But I, there's there's one thing that always gets me, though, is that it seems like there's more information out there now than there ever has been. And the level of playing has decreased the quality of the play. And I'm, I don't mean that for everyone. I mean, but by and large, I feel like now there's so much information out there that you know, people almost take it for granted because they didn't work hard for it. They didn't go down to the local club when, when Buddy Rich was playing because, you know, obviously Buddy Rich has passed, but they, but cause they can watch it on YouTube. So they didn't value. I feel like people don't value the education as much now and, you know, dismiss it and, and don't really spend the time falling in love with the instrument the way that you need to, or the way you had to years ago. Yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. Um, because there's there's certainly a lot of great players out there and and people doing really cool stuff which I agree with too you know yeah so it's but, kind of like this double edged sword as far as I'm concerned you know that 
Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, you know, information overload and everybody's got a little bit of ADD or something these days because mm-hmm. <laughs> myself included, you know, yep. it's like hard to focus on any one thing for, for too long, but it is, um, because of the way everything is sort of fed to us now through mm-hmm. the media, but, um, but you know, back in the day, songs used to be two minutes long, <laughs> right? You know, right, right, right. And that's what all the pop stuff was, and mm-hmm. it's interesting seeing how kind of the digital age is is almost going back to the way of the singles, you know, right? Because it used to be the, all about radio singles and B sides, mm-hmm. and now it's almost like that's what you have to do to keep people's attention in the digital age because if you release a whole record it's kind of like well okay they released that record right you know it still takes just as much time to make a record but now like they're like okay i've heard that for two weeks what is, what's next what's next right you know so it's almost like smarter if an artist releases little bits i mean that's why you're starting to see more eps mm-hmm. and singles and stuff just creeping out on their own you know i, I didn't think. realize that Sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to. No, comment. that's just. I'm just saying. That's what I think. At least right. you know. It's funny. I I didn't realize this until I talked to Ndugu Chancellor about when they um when they cut the Thriller record, yeah. and Quincy Jones said that he wanted it to be like old radio tune or like he they wanted the record to come out like it was an old record. So they wanted every single song on the record to be a single. And that was it. And he said he wanted each song to be like a Polaroid and it could stand on its own and it didn't have anything to do with the rest of the record. Right. And, and he was like the first guy that ever, that ever did this. And they made each song sound different. They made each song, you know, a a single so that they could just put it out as they wanted to and just keep putting out new singles rather than, you know, records at that time had two singles on it and the rest were, you know, B-sides or filler. Yeah. Pretty totally. amazing, pretty amazing concept though that that it was never done before that you know. Oh yeah, no, I I love that idea. I mean, I, I love the concept record too, though. You know, it's like me too. That's a cool thing. I, I like what um, I haven't checked it out yet, but I know uh, Jeff Tweedy just his new record Tweedy is like a double LP. That's awesome. And he very, I read a thing where he he very consciously made it to be listened on vinyl in a certain way where you listen to the A side, then you flip it and listen to the B side, then your ears kind of take a break and then you listen to the next record, you know? And Mm -hmm. and so as he put it together, he had it as a concept of doing it as two records and sort of having that break in between each side and also between the two records Mm -hmm. and listening to the whole thing as an experience, you know? And I dig that too. Yeah, yeah, which I is totally a cool, it, you know, it's another approach. But it seems like these days it's kind of like it's either got to be some sort of concept out on vinyl like that or needs to be short and quick and keep coming out with it. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. I agree. Now, you had mentioned something, um, mentioned something before about everyone having ADD and, and trying to stay focused. And so that makes me think of you in terms of all the stuff that you do. I mean, you, you perform with Ben Queller, you perform with Hayes Carl, John Fulbright. You were just on uh, the Letterman show with John Fulbright, uh, Sam Baker. You work with you just recently worked with Chris Christopherson. So how do you how do you manage all of your time and how do you manage to um, 
to keep your head above water and, and stay focused on all these things enough to give it a hundred percent effort when you're working on these things. Yeah, it's, it's a tricky thing. I mean, and not to cut you off, you also own a percussion company, Swan Percussion. We're going to get into that too. So it's like you, you're doing all this stuff. Oh yeah. And you run a business as well. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just tell people all the time that, that I've just sort of, through my life, figured out a way to extend my childhood, <laughs> you know, and like, uh, I like within music, like I've always been, you know, I grew up doing the classical thing, but I was also listening to Motown records and like, um, a lot of old country radio and stuff mm-hmm. and, and so many different things. And it's like, uh, yeah, I have to switch hats a lot. Um, you know, playing with Ben, it's very much like a rock and roll, hard hitting gig. And I'm singing a lot of backgrounds and, uh, and wearing the hat. Yeah. (laughs) Wearing my Buffalo hat. What's the deal? Where did that come from? We're going to digress for one second and talk about that. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, one, I think it was last year, uh, Ben was having a little Halloween party at his house and um so i needed a costume and i just kind of grabbed a this buffalo hat that was uh my wife's (laughs) that was in the closet right and my wife was actually out of town um but she's into otherwise i probably would have had a much more elaborate costume but uh so i just grabbed this hat and threw it on and that was my costume and i show up and and ben was like man I dig the the buffalo hat. You should you should totally wear that at a gig sometime. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So the next gig, I wore the buffalo hat, and uh, people seemed to really dig it. Nice. So so then I just started wearing it on the gigs, and he started introducing me as Buffalo Meadows, <laughs> and uh, and it's just kind of stuck. Um, I don't know how you play with that thing, man, because it looks so hot. It gets it gets pretty hot in there, but it keeps my hair out of my eyes, which is a good thing. Well, that's thing. good. That's good. So, um, and every now and then it falls off when I'm rocking too hard. Right. But you're but, all about uh, you're all about functionality, you know. It's like, <laughs> yeah. hey, man, it keeps my hair out of my eyes. That's uh, that's the purpose. <laughs> yeah. So I'll keep rocking it for a while, unless one of these days I pass out or something. Right. Know. I just remember walking into the gig and I look up and I'm like, what the hell is he wearing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and I only wear that with uh, with Ben. That's with the only ben. gig that I wear that on. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but it is one of those things. It's kind of like, um, like a mindset. You know, like right. okay, I'm putting this hat on, mm-hmm. and this means like I'm doing this particular thing now. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like right before the show, like I put that on, and then it's like that's the part that I'm playing that night. Right. You know. Right. So go back to what we, what you were talking about 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 trying to stay focused and about getting all these things done. Yeah, um, I think part of it is I try not to think too much about it. Actually, <laughs> it's like I I've spent my life doing all these different types of things, and so at this point, it's it it's pretty fluid to go between things, and it's more of just sort of taking a second to think about okay who am i on tour with and where am i at or who am i in the studio with today and what kind of music are we recording 
because sometimes I'm playing hand percussion, sometimes I'm playing drum set, sometimes I'm doing a, a hybrid combination of the two. Um, sometimes I'm singing a lot of background vocals, sometimes I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then some gigs that are loud and I'm hitting really hard and some gigs I'm playing very, very quietly. And there definitely is like a, a moment of preparation of thinking like, okay, this is where I'm at right now. And, and I think just being present, you know, really mm-hmm. being in that moment and not thinking too much about where I just was or where I have to be next. Mm-hmm. Just being like, this is where I am and this is what I do right now. You know, I don't know if that sounds like too, uh, or so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I don't know. No, but, I think but, that, but I, just really not trying, not thinking about what's next or what's behind me and just being really there for that moment and, and fitting that need for whatever artist that I'm, playing with you know like you know i think that i think that a lot of people you know are don't perform at their highest level because they're thinking about what they did yesterday or what they have to do tomorrow and they're not present or that you know even when you see people out to dinner there's four people out to dinner and they're all on their cell phones you know it's like are you you're how are you enjoying the company or how are you giving 100 percent to this to this time if you're not present you know yeah totally i think so often, you know, people are kind of thinking about the next thing, you know, right. as opposed to, well, what are you doing right now? Mm-hmm. Like, like what you did in the past. Awesome. That's cool. That's great. But we're in a different moment now. And what you're, you know, potentially going to do in the future. That's great, too. But, you know, I just think it's really important to just kind of take a minute to be focused on where you are right then and do the best job for that moment, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you possibly can and, and being focused. I mean, same thing with, with, uh, being in the studio, like as a track is going down and you're in the studio, like, uh, and I've heard other people talk about it before is like, you just want to be sort of laser focused for those four and a half minutes or whatever it is mm-hmm. and really not think about anything else of, of your day because it's so easy to get distracted. But I think that's, Absolutely. that's what helps create really great moments in, in the studio and, uh, and first takes and stuff like that is, is just really being present and focused in that moment, you mm-hmm. know? And I remember when I cut my record, the last record I put out when we were recording, I was like, Hey, listen, you know, I'm paying for all you guys to be here. I don't want anybody on their cell phones while we're in here. Turn turn them off. You're in a session all day, and let's just stay focused. Let's let's you know be in the moment. Let's cut this record and make it sound good. Uh, not like during you know during playback, people are texting and and making phone calls and stuff like that. So and it definitely it helps, man. You gotta you gotta be there for for what you're there for, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally, yeah. and. You know, you just you want to respect everybody's time, the, mm-hmm. the the artist and producer and and people that are hiring you, and and as well as like the the guys that are playing on the session with you. Right. Now, speaking of sessions, uh, you and I had talked about it before, but you had just worked with Chris Christopherson. 
which I'm sure was an amazing experience. Tell us a little bit about that and how that came about. Yeah, um, it was pretty pretty mind-boggling because um, I, I really, early on when I was, you know, just two, like two, three years old, like I really loved country radio and that was in the mid to late 70s and that's when he was on heavy rotation, you know, so I, I really grew up listening to a lot of those songs were kind of in my DNA. And, um, and so he, you know, a lot of these older artists are, are starting to get their, their publishing rights back to these songs that they had, had sold or given away to the record labels. And so I got a call from Christopherson's management to, uh, do a session while he was in town. And, and the goal was really to just do, um, some of his biggest hits and re-record them so that he could, you know, put them out and use them and, and have versions that, that he, uh, can get the money from, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, we went in and recorded, we ended up doing, uh, something like 25 songs or something like that instead of five. (laughs) Jeez. So, yeah. And instead of being two days, they added a third day and, um, Cheryl Crow also came in and sang a duet with him. And it it was a song called the, the loving gift that he had written, but he had never performed before. Um, Johnny Cash and, and June Carter Cash had recorded it and performed it a bunch, uh, you know, back in the day, mm-hmm. but he had actually never done his own version of it. So that was pretty cool. And, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure when that's going to be released or how they're going to do it. I know they're, they're releasing a live record that, um, like a solo thing that he did in, in London last year that, that the guys from Abbey road studios came out and recorded him. And mm. so that's, that's getting released sometime now ish, like pretty soon. So it'll probably be another year or so before they get around to releasing those. But it was just such a cool experience, you know, recording me and Bobby McGee and, Sunday morning coming down, help me make it through the night. Like just all these songs that are, are just classics, you know, and to get to do them with, with, with the guy that wrote it was, was phenomenal. So how does that call come in? I mean, did you, did you know his management or were you recommended by somebody? Yeah. I I knew his management. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. So I get a lot of questions. Uh, you know, people always ask me, what, what should I do if I want to be a session drummer? What can I, what should I do if I want to be a touring drummer? And you do both. Uh, and you do it a lot. I mean, you cut a lot of records and if you're not on the road, you're in the studio. If you're not in the studio, you're on the road. So what is your advice for people that are trying to do the same exact thing? Um, I guess the thing is just to really get out and and play music that you like <laughs> mm-hmm. with people that you like as much as possible and and do the best job that you can and be a nice human being and show up on time and eventually 
word will start to get around. I mean, I, I've never, you know, the, the only audition that I've ever had was the one I told you about earlier when I was five years old. That and you didn't even know about. <laughs> that I didn't know was an audition. <laughs> right. But that's literally the only audition I've ever had. I mean, uh, a lot of things, it's just kind of like you play with somebody and then, you know, maybe someone else sees you at a club and they like the way that you play. So then they ask if you're available to play some gigs with them or do a tour or maybe a recording. And um, I think the the thing for me is I've always kind of, uh, even though I've played a lot of different styles, eventually I kind of started doing my own thing and just being true to myself and my own personality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I love hand percussion stuff and I love drums, uh, like drum set and, and I love combining them and I love creating different sounds. And the more that I started doing sort of these things in my own unique way and, and that was true to myself and my personality, uh, the more the case became that, that I would get calls to just do my thing as opposed to somebody who's looking for a good drummer you know? Right. Um, and that's great because to me, it's kind of like, you know, that was, that was one of my ultimate goals was to get a a voice of my own eventually, Mm -hmm. whether it's on drum set or percussion or, or both, but to get to a point where they're calling me because they specifically want me for, for what I do in my own voice. Because the cool thing about that is, I know how to be me better than anybody. Exactly. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, it sounds kind of ridiculous. No, it's it, like, it, it makes total no, sense. Yeah, there's no like, there's no fear. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, they wait, they called because they want me to just be the best version of me, and right. I can do, I can do that. <laughs> you right. know, right, right, right. They, no, it makes they, total sense. They don't want me to do this other thing that I may or may not be able to do. Right, and so. I, you know, I really tried to to cultivate that um, as much as possible, and and to learn to say like, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm not the guy for this gig. Like, actually, this is the person that you want. Sure. sure. And I think that's an important thing is to to really realize what it is that that you're passionate about and what makes you happy, because that really comes off um, to everybody, in, whether it's in the studio or on stage. If you are happy and stoked to be there, then people are going to know that. Mm-hmm. If you feel like um, like you're just hanging on, they're going to sense that too. If you feel like you're bored out of your mind, they're going to know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I think you know it's just so important to really be honest about what you're capable of. I mean, it's it's important to push yourself and to take things that are that are challenging and that are going to stretch you. But but I think there's a limit to that. Like if it's challenging and going to stretch you and it's something that you're really into, then yeah, that's great. But if it's challenging and stretching you and it's maybe stylistically something that you would never put on in your car when you're driving around town or put on your headphones when you're going for a long walk, then maybe that's not the gig for you. Right. You know? right, right, right. I agree. And, you know, it's... It's one thing, like you said, to be stretched, but you don't want to be the guy up there that's like holding on, you know, for dear life. And it doesn't sound good because you're just trying to make it through the tunes. 
Yeah, you're trying to mimic something that that you're not passionate about. Right. You know? Right. Because because ultimately that that passion is is what you want to be doing. So really, like you know, once you kind of start to figure that out, because I think it's important to try different things when you're young and you're developing. You know, uh, go out and and try all these different styles and listen to it and transcribe it and play it and see what feels right and what fits you. And eventually you'll start to kind of figure that out. And then you just stay strong and, and stick to that and be the best at, at what it is that you love, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. I totally 100% agree. And now you were saying that you've, you've developed your own style and you've developed your own sound and you've taken that one step further and have created Swan Percussion, a, percu- uh, a percussion company uh, that you own with a, a guy named Eric Holland. And but you designed drums and you invented a drum called the Black Swan, which is another another way of you defining your sound because you're the only guy in the world that has this thing. So let's talk about the creation about the about the Black Swan and, and Swan Percussion as a whole. Sure. Um... Yeah, that that all kind of came about again as uh, there were certain sounds and and ideas that I had that I wanted to be able to play, and I didn't have the right tools to do it. Um, and the the Black Swan drum was sort of the the start of Swan percussion, and there was actually no intention of, of having a company. It was really just to have this one drum and it was based on, on a, a traditional uh, Ghanaian drum called the Gome or Gombe mm-hmm. uh, that the Ga people play in Pan Logo music and uh, the Ashanti people play. And it's my belief that that instrument, the Gome or Gombe is is also the precursor to the cajon. And it's basically like a, it's a, uh, a drum that you see most often is sort of a square shape drum that you sit on top of and the, the back part is open and on the front it has a goat skin. So mm-hmm. instead of a, a wooden panel, there's a goat skin and then the sides are wooden and then, you know, it's a wooden frame around that. And you spelled a G U M B E, G O M E, or G O M B E. I got you. I think go may uh, just the M E is is the one that you see most often. But mm-hmm. I've also heard people say go bay. Um, it's funny if you search G O M E drum and uh-huh. image the fourth line down, you see the black swan. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not like a drum that you see a whole lot of. No. Um, I learned about it from, from studying in Ghana, uh, where I've gone a couple times now to study with the, the Awe and the the Ga the, and the Dagara people over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've also over here, and I guess I forgot to mention earlier too in my, my drum development that I also went to Berkeley College of Music and uh, studied with a lot of guys there that were big influences, and one of them being Joe Galliota, who's the head of the, the African percussion department there. Mm-hmm. 
and he leads the uh, African Drum and Dance Ensemble, which I was in for a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did and, the same thing when I was in college. Was in yeah. African percussion was awesome. Yeah, and um, and so then I, I went to Africa with Joe because he would do these trips over there too because um, he got his master's degree over there. And uh, he's married to a Ghanaian woman, and so he's he's very connected. He's been going there since the early '80s, and he goes a couple times a year at least. And um, so I got connected to a lot of that stuff through him, and that's where I initially had um, contact with the Gome and learned about it in the context of of the Pan logo music of the the Ga people. Mm-hmm. And um, I just thought it was such a cool instrument. And, you know, I'd also been playing cajon and, and starting to use that in, in like, different backbeat contexts. Um, while I was in school at Berkeley, I also um, had a, a, this band um, that was just a, a – we would go – and busk in the subways as a duo, me and, and my buddy Dan. And you weren't allowed to have drums down there. So my workaround was having a cajon and frame drum and shakers and stuff. Uh-huh. And, and so we would go and go down there super early in the morning and, and busk, uh, you know, anywhere from two to five days a week. And I would do that for the for the rush hour commuters before going to class. <laughs> so, Jeez, that's an early gig. Yeah, it was an <laughs> early gig, but you know we could make some money and and uh, and we built up a pretty good fan base in Boston. And uh, but I also I developed all these different ways of playing. Like I would put ankle bells on my left foot, and I'd have a tambourine under my right foot, and I'd have a shaker in my right hand and some kashishi in my left hand mm-hmm. you know and or i'd play the cajon and combine the and because the whole thing was i needed to be so portable that i could go on the subway and get down there um deep underground and so i couldn't carry a lot of gear and i technically couldn't have any drums right right and so I started coming up with sort of these different hybrid ways. And at the time, uh, you couldn't even really buy cajones over here. And, you know, we would tour like that and sound guys would have no clue <laughs> what they're like. What, how do you want me to mic that? Wouldn't Didn't you like get in an thing? argument with some guy about micing it? And uh, he's what? like, no, you got to mic it like this. You're like, dude, I invented the drum. I know where it needs to be mic'd. Well, yeah, that that came later with the Black Swan. Um, yeah. That yeah, definitely because I had had worked it so many different ways. But this was even earlier, um, you know, fifteen years ago right. when nobody was playing cajons in anything but traditional contexts. And I started playing it in backbeat stuff and I you know now you see it all over the place but at the time I didn't ever see anybody (laughs) doing what I was doing right you know and uh and so we'd go to these clubs and they literally were like what is this box and then well it's actually called a cajon (laughs) and here's how you want to mic it and 
you know, and then they'd be like, oh, that's, that box is pretty cool. And then, of course, like, by the time the Cajon got popular, I stopped. I, I had already I then created the Black Swan, and then I would go into a club with that, and they'd be like, oh, how should I mic this Cajon? <laughs> and I'd be like, well, <laughs> it's not really a Cajon. <laughs> be like, I don't know. Where, I don't even know. Where is the Cajon? I don't even know where it is. Yeah, so it's funny, like, going, you know, from people not knowing what a Cajon is to then knowing what a Cajon is, but then coming up with something else that's, like, further outside of their awareness, you know. Right. So it was a trip. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the Gome was sort of the starting place of of what I wanted, but but I wanted something that um, could use a regular drum head because on the road, if it got broken, the way the Gome works is the it's a goatskin head that's that's nailed on like a frame. And so if it breaks, you know, it's going to be a couple days to fix it if you can find a skin to put on it. Sure. You know? Sure. And and so I wanted something that could use a, a just a regular floor tom head that I could find anywhere at any music store in any small town. You mm-hmm. know, so that's why we chose the 16 inch size. Um, I also wanted to be able to fly with it so that it could fit in a standard luggage size without being any overage size. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be tunable. I wanted to be able to add stuff on the sides. I wanted to be able to attach a a pedal to it so that I could play it with um with a bass drum pedal as well as with my hands or brushes and stuff and so this kind of concept came together and uh got together with my buddy eric holland whose background is in design and architecture and he's just he's great at building things and as well as designing them on paper and so he helped kind of take these ideas that were in my head and and make it a reality and so we made this one drum, and that was that was the goal was just this one drum for me, which was cool. Mm-hmm. But then I had friends that were like, "Hey, man, I, I'd be into that." <laughs> like, <laughs> so uh, so we applied for the the patents and uh, created a an LLC and and uh, all that all that kind of stuff, got all the legal stuff together and decided to launch it as a product and start a company. And let me tell you, you got, I mean, other than the black swan, you guys make a bunch of different things too. I mean, you make cajones and the knockbox and shakers and a bunch of other, uh, accessories and things. And every single product that you guys have, and the listeners out there should definitely go check out swanpercussion.com. But every single thing that you guys make is absolutely beautiful. It's. I mean, when you look at it, it you know that it is a high quality product, but it looks really, really good too, which is cool. Thanks, man. That that, that was important to me. I, I wanted everything to be really good levels of quality. Yeah. You know, um, sort of the impetus for for everything that we do is just stuff that I wanted to exist that didn't currently exist. Right. So even like our cajones. They're not like traditional cajones. There's some great traditional cajones that are already in existence and, and that are out there. Um, but, you know, like uh, at the time, I started uh, combining playing cajon and drum set together and, that, and going between the two. But I'd have to put like a phone book on the cajon and then I'd have to – luckily I have really long arms, but I'd have to kind of stretch down to, to get to it. 
And so like one of the things we did was the, the first cajon that we came out with, we call the, the Corsoba Deluxe, and it's a taller cajon. So it's for my height to sit at a drum set. Right. So, so it's literally was created to be my perfect throne height. Right. So, that so basically you just started forth. this company to make all the stuff that you need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and the, the concept is that, well, then if I need it, then there's probably some other people that, that want to have it too. Absolutely. You know, that have been thinking the same thing. And uh, the other thing was... You know, we created our, our cajones where you can play three sides of it instead of just one, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I, there's some that you can play two sides, but now people are starting to catch on to that. But at the time when we came out with it, there was no cajones that had three different playing surfaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also created a system with the string cajones that you can actually change the strings because I'd be on the road playing cajon and the string would break. And the only way to reattach it is you'd have to take the whole front panel off and re-glue it, you know? Right. And so I just have to duct tape it in or just clip it out. So we created a system that uses any guitar string and you can thread the guitar string in. So you can not only change a string if it breaks, but you can also customize the sound of your cajon because you can change different gauge strings, you know? Yeah. And that's something nobody had created a way to to do that. Um, we also came up with a, a pedal bracket system that works on all of our cajons, so you could attach a bass drum pedal to it to play it with your heel or, or whatever. And again, that was something that... I would have to be on a certain type of carpet and I'd have to get a bass drum pedal that had a bass plate on it mm-hmm. and good spikes and maybe Velcro and be on a looped carpet to put it right in front of the cajon. And, you know, that didn't always work. And having a, a pedal with a bass plate on it isn't always convenient for, for flying and traveling. So, uh, you know, creating the bass pedal bracket system that we have was again, just created out of a, uh, a desire that I had for certain functionalities that, that just weren't out there and weren't available to me, you know? But, but like you said, if you need it, I'm sure there's a lot of other people that need it too, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, and since we've done some of this stuff, I've seen other companies come out with similar things, you know, there's, there's now other companies that make cajones that are the same height as our cajon, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, you know, uh, I guess imitation is flattery. Imitation is flattery. That's exactly what I was <laughs> going to say. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, and I've had that happen with a handful of our designs. And, you know, some things we have patents on and I would be more protective of, but certain things, uh, you know, you just got to kind of let go of and, and be like, ah, you know what? more people now finally have exposure to these tools, which is ultimately what I wanted anyway, is to have good tools for myself and for other people. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of our shaker designs too are, are very different, you know, it's sort of enabling you to, to play shakers in different ways that, that you really can't with, with, um, what was available. Right. And so the, the thing with Swan is, is all of our products have to be innovative in some way. They have to be versatile. 
and then they have to be uh, made with with quality materials and craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the three things that that make something a Swan product. So we're everything we do. We're not trying to do anything similar to what's been done. We right. want to do things that are totally different. You know. Well, I think you guys have have done a fine job at that. I'm, I can't wait to to see more stuff that you guys come out with. So. Oh, thanks, man. Absolutely. So what's on what's on the burner now for you? What's the what's the future look like? Oh, the future keeps moving in the same direction. Um, bunch more records and uh, more touring. Uh, I'm always studying more music as well. Like uh, getting ready to go back to Zimbabwe, and I'll be studying in Bira with with my teacher Mathamai over there. Um, I just, I love to constantly learn. Um, I've also been writing songs, uh, some stuff percussion, but some stuff on guitar and singing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I plan on starting to record some of my own material over the next year. Nice. And start putting that out, um, as well as working with the artists that I'm currently working with and a bunch of new ones. That's great. Um, yeah. So are you gonna do the? Are you gonna do the? Uh, you play everything on the on the albums? Uh, no, not necessarily. No. I, you know, I'll play some stuff and then some stuff. I'll bring some friends in for. Right. And, uh, but I'll I'll definitely do some of that. Um, it, it'll be a combination of stuff. I mean, some stuff is gonna be a little more out there and esoteric, and some of it'll be more straightforward uh i've i I also i don't know if i've told you this before but i'm also a stage hypnotist and yeah don't you remember when we were in indiana well you didn't tell me that you were a hypnotist but you did some magic tricks that blew my mind like right right at the table and i'm like and you just like get up and you're like all right you ready to leave and i was like no i want you to tell me how you did all this you're like yeah that's not gonna happen (laughs) yeah yeah so (laughs) I but you got up and we're all like, well, you, I mean, we were there with, uh, with, um, with your buddy, uh, um, and Scott Robinson and Scott Robinson and then myself and Dave from Boso and like you guys got up cause he's seen all this stuff before. And Dave and I are looking at each other like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> I was like, I, I don't, I have no idea how he just did that. Like, I, so I'll tell everybody out there. He just, he had this fork in his hand and just like rubbed it. And the whole thing just bent into like a circle and, and then I tried to bend it back, and I could hardly even move it. So it's quite <laughs> impressive. Okay, go ahead. So you're a stage yeah. hypnotist, and yeah, I'm a hypnotist, and I do uh, mentalism and 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 metal bending. And then I also I grew up doing magic when I was a kid, and and you know even like card tricks and stuff. And mm-hmm. and uh, and then I also do all the sideshow stuff, like uh, you know eating fire and and. Uh, eat a light bulb, walk on broken glass, pound a nail in my nose, you know, walk up a ladder of swords, lie on a bed of nails. <laughs> Jeez. The, the usual, right. you know. <laughs> um, but, uh, but last year I started combining some of that stuff. Like I, I, I did a performance art piece that I've, I've done at a, a couple festivals and, um, and some different, events around town here in Austin as well, uh, where I started combining stuff. So I, I would play 
kalimba and, and loop it and, and layer different shaker stuff on it. And then, uh, you know, I have this one piece specifically that I'm talking about now that, that, uh, I then have a, a bucket filled with broken wine bottles and whiskey bottles. And I pour the glass onto the, the stage and then I take my socks and shoes off and I walk barefoot on the broken glass while the loop is going. And then I'm also playing the Hajira, which is a, a type of frame drum that, that Cooperman drums makes. And uh, I improvise on the Cooperman um, Hajira as I'm walking on the broken glass, which is also mic'd up. And, and the loop is going. <laughs> Jeez. So it's kind of combining the, you know, two of my different passions together. And I'm working on some other pieces that are also going to combine those things as well. So one of the things I want to do is release some of those songs in video form, you know. So right, right, right. go get a good audio recording of it in the studio, but have someone come in and, and film me doing the, the whole thing in the studio as well. And just put that out there. And, you know, it's more definitely uh more on the outside of of the realm of what i i normally do but it's um it's cool art you know it's just it's a different expression and and it's something that's very unique to myself yeah so i want to i dig I it man i i, I like that you know i i like the fact that you you do all these crazy things and not, and I, I don't know. I don't mean like you do all these crazy things. I meant in terms of you do a crazy amount of things that you're like, Oh yeah, I play, I cut records with Chris Christopherson and I walk on glass and I can bend metal and I am a hypnotist and I wear a hat and play with, uh, with, um, uh, like ben, uh, ben Queller, you know, it's like, and you do all these things and you're like, Oh yeah, then I'm going to Zimbabwe and I do this and I do this. And I, I, I think it's awesome, man. I think it, <laughs> it makes you totally, uh, well-rounded. And I think that you take, I think that you take risks sometimes, uh, you know, to further what you want to accomplish and they pay off for you. And I, I think that's great. I, th I think that's admirable and I, I think it's cool. Thanks, man. Yeah. I, I mean that. It's cool, man. I think that there's a lot of people that are like, damn, I wish I had the balls to do some of that stuff. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm just going to create this drum now. <laughs> right, right. And it's like, to you, you're probably like, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal. But for somebody who's never done it before or is think that wants to do something like that, it's a large, un even just starting this website that I did, Drummer's Resource, it's like, you know, it's it was a huge undertaking. And now I look at it, I'm like, Oh, anybody could have done it, but it was a pain in the ass. And it took, you know, it's a lot of hard work, but you know, it pays off after a while, but I, but kudos to you, man. I, I admire everything that you're doing. It's awesome. Thanks. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Absolutely, man. So if people want to find out more information about you, they can just go to meadowsdrums.com. Yeah. Meadowsdrums.com. I'm, I'm pretty good about updating on there. Uh, I could definitely, use a, an overhaul of stuff, but they can, my schedule is usually up on there and, um, some more information about me and, and links to Swan and all that stuff are, are all there at meadowsdrums.com. And, uh, do you teach too? Uh, occasionally my schedule doesn't really allow for it very much. Right. Um, wow. You're not that busy. It's not like you're doing stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I do, um, the occasional like one one off lesson, right? Um, 
or Skype lesson or something like that because, again, I have some of this unique stuff that, that's a little different and sometimes people want to want to learn about some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes I do workshops. I've done different – like I have one workshop that's just playing shakers and a lot of really Which unique – people need to learn how to do. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot harder than most people think. It is. And, um, and I've done that workshop for like out at festivals with where anybody can kind of attend and, and learn something out of it. But I've also done it for just drummers at drum shops and uh, at universities and stuff. So I, I do clinics every now and then. And cool. Yeah. Well, everybody out there, if you're listening – uh, go to meadowsdrums.com if you want to learn more about Mike. Also, do yourself a favor. Check out swanpercussion.com. You will look at all their percussion instruments, and you'll realize what I'm talking about when I say how beautiful they are. And they also sound amazing as well, which is the most important thing. But they look great, too. So check that out. And, Mike, dude, thank you so much for, for doing this, man. I appreciate all the time that you spent chatting with me today, and uh, we'll have to do it again soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely, man. It was it was a pleasure as always. I always love talking to you. Likewise. And I will uh I'll definitely be in touch. Sounds good. All right, man. All right, take All right. care. All right, you too, brother. So that was the very talented Mike Meadows. Be sure to check him out at meadowsdrums.com. Also check out his percussion company, swanpercussion.com. And if you're looking for a way to market yourself as a professional musician and get more exposure, more followers, and more gigs, check out my free webinar, Marketing for the Modern Musician. You can get more information and register for that at drummersresource.com forward slash register. Check me out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash drummersresource, on Instagram at drummersresource, and on Twitter at drummersrsource. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.